0: Hello everybody, this is Raj, this is Ashwan. and uh, this is the Blood Cancer Talks podcast. So Blood Cancer Talks is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease or a treatment area, and we focus on the latest advances in the biology and clinical management. Today we are excited to talk about donor search in allogeneic hematopoietic progenitor cell transplantation, we have an expert, Dr. Matt Calatio, Professor of Medicine, Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Tossic Cancer Center at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, so Dr. Calatio, welcome. Let's, let's first do some quick introduction. Can you tell us about your wh- where you are and what your clinical research focus is?
1: Uh, sure. So uh, I am currently serving as the vice chairman of the Toxic Cancer Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, where I've worked for about... 30 years since I'm doing my fellowship here. In that period of time, I've been, um, I've directed most of the hematology uh, programs except for lymphoma, including bone marrow transplant. But, and I was also the chairman of the department for for seven years, um, recently stepped down into my new role. Um, My research interests in the past have been uh, along all. Uh, hematologic malignancies, depending on what I was doing at the time, determine what research interests I had. But through it all has been uh, stem cell transplantation. That's the, And that's where I've returned to now. I don't do much um, of the other uh, malignancies in the absence of transplant. And I've, through that, been able to introduce myself to uh, CAR T cells and other cellular therapies. And so I, and I've done quite a bit with the CIBMTR, sharing um, uh, some committees there and uh, running studies helping run studies um through them so that's that's my background
2: i think uh, one thing i would say be both uh, me and raj we both rotated in your clinic while we were fellows at cleveland clinic and i highly recommend all the fellows <laughs> to rotate in dr kalisha's clinic because that's where you're going to learn everything absolutely get to see all weight pathologists i think it's that's true. what's exciting about it's your true. clinic. Yeah.
1: I, I think I'm the only one left who sees the entire breadth of hematology, including some benign heme.
0: Right, that's true, that's true. Yes, and, and absolutely, and one thing that I think in my third year while rotating with Dr. Calesio, I always used to you know try to learn every time was how to discuss informed consent and risk benefit of allogeneic transplantation. I think that's an art and that is really, I think somebody like has to rotate with Dr. Calesio in his clinic to learn that. It's hard to learn from any book.
1: The importance, the important point, is to draw pictures. <laughs> that's true. That's Words true. alone will not convey the message.
2: Yep, yep. Yes. And patients always want that.
1: That's right.
2: And that's what you know. Right now, in my own clinic, also, always made a habit to draw the pictures. Yep, and stick with the patients.
0: Sounds good. So let's jump right in. So I'll start with a case to set a context for our discussion today. So a 50-year-old male with FLIT3 positive AML achieves morphologic complete remission after 7 plus 3 plus mitostaur induction chemotherapy. And somewhere while the patient was receiving 7 plus 3, uh, bone marrow transplant service has been consulted. Um, And then on day 14 bone marrow biopsy, the patient seems like it's a morphologic CR. And the plan is to proceed to allogeneic transplantation in CR1 given this is a high risk AML. Um, once service services consulted, the first thing that typically starts is donor search. So uh, Dr. Kalashio, what is the ideal time frame for starting donor search in this situation? And how long does the donor search typically last?
1: All right, so, yeah, great. So uh, this, this is an important point for those out there who don't do what I'm about to tell you, you should. And that is as soon as the uh, diagnosis of high risk AML is made, that's when the transplanters should be consulted. So the ideal timeframe for starting a donor search is as soon as possible, no matter the situation, not just this one. So the, and in this particular situation, though, because it's FLT3 positive, you know, they can, re- they can relapse very quickly and usually do in the absence of uh, transplantation. So the sooner they get to transplant, uh, the the better. And uh, studies have shown that post remission chemotherapy is not required in order to uh, get optimal outcomes. And so we like to take them to transplant right after induction if we can. And the only way that's possible is if the donor search is initiated during induction, uh, while the patient is hospitalized, not to wait until remission to start the search, so uh, a, a typical search um, for uh, takes a, a month, maybe six weeks sometimes if there if it's a, a difficult search because it's not just a running of of a computer database, it's also connecting with the registries and um, making sure that the patients uh, know about it, are available, and blah blah blah. And so the, the search is is administratively long. Um, even if it's a sibling or a haploidentical or even a cord blood unit that's frozen in a bank somewhere, um, it takes time to, uh, to um, find the right source of cells. And that time is precious when you're talking about patients with high-risk AML in CR1.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kalishod. And uh, you highlight a very, very important point. Um, one other thing um, for our listeners can you give us an overview on the different types of donors?
1: yeah, so there's um it, back in the old days when I started, there was one type of donor and that was a sibling um or an, uh, um and the best one we, we thought was an identical twin that turns out not to be so but the um so it, the the historically um classic donor is a fully matched sibling donor um uh, but we learned later that uh, if HLA matching is important, then you can find folks who are not related, who have similar HLA matches and you can, and registries were set up for this to uh, find matched unrelated donors. Now on the the average uh, odds of any one unrelated donor being a match is like one in 15 to 20,000. So just, randomly searching will will not bear fruit. But these registries were set up, and now there are 10 million people in the American registry. And when you look um, in a a registry of 10 million uh, for uh, determinants that are common, you almost always find a donor. So the, uh, the two most common are matched sib and matched unrelated donor, and currently, there are more matched unrelated donor transplants than there are matched sibling transplants performed uh, worldwide. We can also use, based on new techniques, mismatched unrelated donors and mismatched related donors uh, if we manage their graft versus host disease prophylaxis appropriately, and I suspect we'll get to that. Uh, later in the uh, podcast. Finally, there are frozen banks of umbilical cord blood units uh, throughout the nation and the world, um, allowing us to use um, mismatched, usually, um, cord blood units uh, that are banked. Uh, and so there are two large categories of donors, matched and mismatched, um, both related and unrelated
0: sounds good thank you for, for that uh, great introduction to the different types of donors uh, you know there are a couple of terms that we always hear which always confuses me is suitability and eligibility what do these terms suitability and eligibility mean in the context of a donor
1: right so this is this is confusing even to me sometimes and so i i, I have to keep it straight in my head because it's a fact uh, you know, the, our accreditation agency, it's a fact accreditation standard that we record suitability and eligibility prior to transplant. Suitability means that the patient is physically cap- uh, physically able to undergo the, the harvesting technique that you're planning to use, whether that's a bone marrow harvest or apheresis. So, suitable means that they're a good candidate from that perspective. Eligible means that they are free from risk factors um, for relevant communicable diseases and agents free from the risks associated with uh, xenotransplantation and negative for those agents within a specified time frame for the product so someone is eligible if all of their infectious disease markers are negative they are ineligible if for example they have been exposed to hepatitis in the past that doesn't mean that they can't donate it just means that they have this moniker this tight this label of non-eligible, meaning that they're not eligible to donate blood, but they're perfectly able to donate bone marrow so long as the recipients willing to accept that infectious disease risk.
0: So somebody could be ineligible, could but could still be suitable and proceed correct. with a Proceed correct. With a it happens
1: donation. not infrequently, actually.
0: All right. Um, so as you had uh, mentioned briefly that you know HLA matching is very important uh, for finding a donor, can you walk us through what are the different types of HLA alleles and which of them are clinically meaningful when we are doing a donor search in the setting of an allergenic transplant?
1: Yeah. So this question is, is tough because there's 24,000 class one uh, HLA alleles and 8,000 class two alleles. And we don't have time to talk about 30,000 Alleles, but uh, but we can talk about them in broad strokes. And so uh, HLA class one molecules are ex- are expressed on the surface of just about all nucleated cells, whereas class two molecules are expressed only on B lymphocytes and some other um, and like activated T lymphocytes and other um, immune cells. Class one molecules are the HLA A, B, and C, and uh, class two are the HLA um, D. Um, DRB1, DQ, and uh, DP. So those are the two um, big classes of HLA molecules that we're looking for. The class ones tend to uh, present antigen. If this, for for those of you who are uh, HLA wonks out there, the class ones, uh, uh, class uh, HLA, A, B, and C, they tend to present antigen to CD8 cells and the class twos present antigen to CD4 cells. So they do different things. If they're not not just labeled differently; they actually do physiologically different things, and it's important that b- both match in the uh, for for graft rejection purposes. If there's a mismatch, graft rejection tends to happen. With appropriate immunosuppression, you can over overcome that. Uh, you can get them to 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 grow, um, but the more mismatched someone is to a, to a potential donor, the more problems uh, that come. I'll tell you that the most common alleles found in Caucasians are HLA-2, HLA-A-2, HLA-B-35, and DRB-1-11, 13, and 07. Um, and this is um, important because in general, when we search for donors, we either find a lot because they're common HLA alleles or none because they're uncommon. Um, that's a, a particular problem for underrepresented minorities in the registry uh, because they're, um, not only are there fewer donors in the registry, but they have a more heterogeneous HLA complex um, due to um, geographic issues from um, their African lineage if they're African American or Native American. They all come from different. Um, societal groups. And as a result, there's a lot of heterogeneity in contrast to uh, to European whites. So that's why um, HLA, uh, that's why whites tend to have uh, much better chances of finding a a match in the registries compared to uh, minorities. Yeah, so uh, just to
0: summarize, so basically for HLA class 1, we typically do typing for A, B, and C. And for class 2, we do for DRB1, DQ, and DP. Is that correct. right these are the all the alleles that are That's that are correct. Tight. there's
1: there's more there are more HLA determinants than that but those are the ones that we are most commonly uh, looking for uh when we when you hear the the old uh, six out of six yeah. that's um, HLA because there's two alleles so it's A B and DR uh, DRB1 if it's eight out of eight it's ABC and DRB1 and if it's 10 it's um those plus DP
2: yeah, we see this terminologies all the time: six out of six, eight out of eight, ten out of ten, and twelve out of twelve. Um, I think you know sometimes it's confusing. Uh, which donor do we need to type twelve out of twelve, and which donor we need to type, you know, ten out of ten or eight out of eight? And you know, thank you for some of the um, typing. You already mentioned that we need to test for those specific things. But right. which donor do do we need to do twelve out of twelve?
1: So for a sibling map for if you're looking at brothers and sisters, um, all you need is a six out of six and you can do it at what's called um, low resolution typing, uh, serologic typing with the antibodies. But if you're looking for unrelated donors, that's not good enough because any allele level mismatch creates problems both with graft rejection and with graft versus hope disease. So we use high resolution typing for, unrelated donors, and that high resolution typing uh, it can, it is necessary at eight determinants, HLA, A, B, C, and DRB1, two alleles each. And the CIBMTR defines a well-matched unrelated donor as allele matched at those determinants. But most centers, and we're, and we're one of those most centers, we look at 12 determinants and getting a 12 out of 12 would be a, a perfect match that is actually unusual because as you stretch out the HLA molecule there's more chances of uh, recombinant uh, defects and the uh, and we we uh, we often mismatch at DP in unrelated donors but they're still well matched they have an impact but uh, not not a prohibitive impact at uh, mismatching at DP
2: So other thing uh, we also see is, you know, like you already uh, mentioned, high-resolution HLA typing and antigen-level HLA typing. What is the difference between these two?
1: Yeah. So serologic typing is simply a uh, a lymphocytotoxic test uh, where you add... Uh, antibodies to cells, throw in some complement, and look for cytotoxicity. That test is called a micro lymphocytotoxic test, and because it's impossible to pronounce, we had to do other, we had to advance our our testing so we we wouldn't have to say that. So um, the molecular testing is simply various kinds of PCR techniques. Um, They're, um, and I'm not, facile with all the various techniques that they do. Uh, but it's really the difference between uh, lymphocytotoxic assays and PCR.
2: And where do we we always need to do um, high resolution HLA typing, which is like you were mentioning a PCR based test um, for unrelated donors and the antigen level, which is the um, uh, the lymphocyte testing you were mentioning. For related donors,
1: well, we we actually end up doing high resolution for all, just because the serologic testing is a little bit is is Got more it. Uh, it, it's it's more uh, manually difficult, um, labor intensive is the word I'm looking for, and okay. so it's just easier to do PCR on everybody and uh, and figure it out that way. But for those, you know, some countries may not have availability for PCR. And so serologic typing is just fine if you're using siblings.
2: So it is is it fair to say that antigen level testing is kind of obsolete uh, right now in the United
1: States? Yes, I would say that very few people are still doing that. Got it.
0: Yeah, so uh, you know as we are talking about the different the levels of matching, are there any data to suggest that increase in donor recipient mismatch adversely impacts like overall survival after transplant?
1: Yes, um, so there was a uh, analysis of uh, the CIBMTR. Um, I forget it wasn't very, it wasn't very long ago. It's in the last five years of analysis of over ten thousand transplants, looking at um, a, a multivariate analysis of all these various outcomes, and uh, and within that analysis, um, there was clear, uh, clearly worse outcome with increasing HLA disparity. Now, those data were mostly derived in the period of time that precedes current GVHD prophylaxis with post-transplant cyclophosphamide. Um, so there may be that may mitigate that change, but clearly, with standard GVHD prophylaxis, the methotrexate FK506 of the world, increasing HLA disparity not only increases the risk of graft rejection, it increases substantially. Uh, with each disparity, the risk of subsequent graft versus hope disease, and those two uh, abnormalities end up um, reducing um, overall survival in a statistically significant way in that analysis. One
2: other question, one of the follow-up question I had is uh, in terms of HLA typing. Um, sometimes we see that you know for high-resolution HLA typing you know, some institutions recommend just a buccal swab and some institutions require blood sample. Why is there a the differences in, you know, doing the high resolution typing and why the different tissue sources matter?
1: Uh, yeah, so the swab will, will give you um high resolution at certain determinants, but not all of them. And the, we want blood to, to as confirmatory, um, not because, Swabs sometimes they'll grow or whatever. And we want enough sample so that after the transplant, we can look at chimerism. You can't do that from a swab um, because you don't have enough. You have to have sample saved in order to do the testing down the road. And so having blood um, helps us do that.
2: Uh, that's a very important point. So you would always prefer for HLA typing to have the blood drawn if yeah. possible. So yeah, that the swab, we can. The swabs,
1: yeah, the swabs are more. Yes, the swabs are more low resolution anyway. They're not as uh, high resolution as you can get with blood. Okay.
0: So the next question we had was, what is the significance of typing HLA, DP and DQ? And, you know, in in a patient in whom you have, let's let's say, all 12 out of 12 high resolution HLA type, how do you take the DP and DQ results into consideration when deciding on the optimal donor?
1: Right. So um, I'll I'll go back to what I said earlier and um, preface this discussion by saying that you don't really have to have DP or DQ in the mix at all. A well-matched donor matches at ABC and DRB1. Having said that, um, if you throw in DP and DQ, they do they do impact outcomes to a degree. Uh, so DP are, uh, uh, is probably the most studied. And I'll, I'll, just about everything I'm about to say uh, comes from work done by Effie Petersdorf at at uh, Hutch, and a lot of her papers were published in uh, New England Journal over the years that have led to our common, un- our, our current understanding of DP and DQ, and so uh, mismatches uh, based on the T-cell epitope groups, um, and, and these are um, um, Markers on the on the surface of the cell that align with uh, DP. They're, they've been shown to identify mismatches that can be tolerated, what we call permissive, and those that would increase risk, non-permissive. And we do look at permissive and non-permissive DP matching um, when we're when we're looking at donors. So when all things being equal, we prefer a permissive. DP match compared to a non-permissive match or mismatch. I'm sorry, these are mismatches. So a permissive mismatch is better than a non-permissive mismatch. Um, but the, dip, but the, the, the difference in outcome, although statistically significant, is really not very, it's not very large. You need lots of people, to, lots of patients to discover this uh, difference. And also among recipients of HLA-DPB1 mismatched transplants, from donors with low, um, with a with a specific low expression allele, recipients with a high expression allele have a higher risk of graft versus host disease, and that is independent of this permissive non-permissive thing. So there, and we, and we don't look at this currently at the Cleveland Clinic. We don't look at this uh, exp, low level expression versus high level expression in, in our in our matching. So the point of all of this about DP is. You don't really have to even look, but if you do look, there are certain matches and mismatches that are better than others. As for DQ, a paper just came out from Dr. Petersdorf's lab in the New England Journal showing that, uh, and and quite honestly, up until this paper, I basically ignored DQ. Uh, It almost always matches if ABC and DR matches, and so I just it, it, it wasn't part of my thinking, but now it might because she showed, uh, her lab showed that uh, cis and trans dimerization dimerization of the HLADQ complex produces molecules that influence the risk of relapse after transplant. So meaning certain configurations can result in fewer relapses. Now this changes the whole paradigm of everything we've talked about so far. Is it True. If that's true, then maybe even within matches, you might need to look at cis and trans dimerization of these uh, of these uh, protein chains across all of HLA matching. This that that paper has the has the potential to uh, really impact uh, future tissue typing. We're not looking at cis and trans dimerization here. I guess they are at Seattle. I don't know if they're using this clinically or not, but th- that. That was a, a, a remarkable painting. So I, I suspect the technique to do this is difficult and expensive, and it may not um, uh, make it to clinical practice if it's not um, clinically meaningful. But the whole idea here is that uh, there's a lot more to HLA matching than just the way the cells appear, uh, uh, the, the way their sequence appears uh, to, uh, to us by PCR techniques.
0: Yeah, thanks for this great insight. Yeah, it's very interesting.
2: Yes. Um, so coming to uh, haplo transplant, uh, Dr. Kalisho, which is a hot topic um, and I'm rising, uh, a lot of people are considering haplo transplant uh, worldwide. What is a haploidentical donor?
1: So we've been talking about HLA matching across these determinants, and for a sibling, we've said that you need r- low resolution typing at six determinants, A, B, and DRB1. And there's two alleles. So it's you know three three sites, two alleles each, six out of six. So that's a fully uh, identical HLA-matched donor. A haploidentical is when it's half-matched. You get one set of allele from w- one parent, another set from another parent. This is, you know, and there's gen- Mendelian genetics that determine um, how these things are spread so that there's one in four siblings will have will be hla matched one in four won't match at all but two out of four will be haplo identical meaning half matched to each other so there's a lot more haplo identical donors than there are matched donors got it
2: and how do we transcend the HLF barrier and, and haploid transplants?
1: Right, so that people have, become, knowing this, lots of people over time have tried to um, make mismatched related donors functional and effective. This goes way back to treatments that were um, originally tried in the uh, late 90s. And those treatments included lots of heavy immunosuppression and um, heavy chemotherapy and radiation, and they just were too toxic. More recently, uh, a group in Italy uh, came up with a a, a, a T-cell depletion technique, and and again, with uh, lots of um, immunosuppression and heavy uh, doses of chemotherapy and or radiation. And they were reasonably, reasonably successful, but it was a complicated, Procedure um, and and not easily and not amenable to ease of transfer into the clinic, but the group at um, Johns Hopkins though did come up with a technique that clearly allows uh, us to transcend that that barrier to a significant degree. They first showed it in mice, and and um, and this is sounds crazy to the uninitiated, but the idea here is to give chemotherapy specific chemotherapy at a specific time, at a specific dose after the transplant to um, kill rapidly uh, proliferating activated T cells, generally helper, I mean, sorry, CD8 cytotoxic T cells, leaving relatively the CD4 helper cells behind. By doing that, they they largely eliminate acute graft-versus-host disease and the acute rejection that might come with such a transplant, allowing for um, just about everyone to engraft and actually reducing the risk uh, of graft-versus-host disease compared to what you'd expect in a mismatched transplant. It's a remarkable technique that I don't, I'm not so sure Johns Hopkins has enough, has got enough credit for.
2: Thank you, thank you, Dr. Kalish. Um, so one of the questions that uh, you know, always comes in some of these donor discussions is, you know, if you have a 8 out of 8 MUD donor versus a haplo donor, which one do you prefer?
1: Yes. So uh, as you can imagine, there are uh, lots of uh, questions around this <clears throat> and, there's, and the data uh, coming out have been, in my mind, clear. And and that is not only is a our um, our haploident are, are, let me put it this way matched unrelated donor transplants and sibling transplants are um, superior to haploidentical transplants with regard to graft versus host disease and non-relapse mortality. Um, and different studies show different benefits and uh, uh, pros and cons for, for these two things. But the bulk of data suggests that haploidentical should be reserved when you can't find a matched sibling or a matched unrelated donor. They they work, They it can be done, but it doesn't, it's certainly not superior to those older techniques and it's probably worse.
2: Uh, but now, why would you pick a you know, haplo? Uh, I meant to say match unrelated donor versus haplo. What is your reasoning behind that?
1: Well, not only are the data um, compelling to me in terms of outcomes, but when you're looking for a mismatched unrelated, I'm not I'm sorry, a matched unre- or even a mismatched, a, a uh, matched unrelated donor, in general, you can pick a young donor. But if it's a haplo identical, donor. It's often family and a brother or a sister, and the patients are older. And so you're looking at a 60-year-old haploidentical t- donor versus a 25-year-old matched unrelated donor. And Age is important. And so the uh, in general, we like the, a young matched donor compared to an older mismatched donor.
0: Is there any randomized trial comparing these two techniques, like any any on the on the works or any any randomized trial currently accruing patients, which will answer this question?
1: Not that I'm aware of. The registry data, I think, is going to make such a study uh, difficult to perform. Uh, the BMTCTN might be looking at this, but if they are, I'm I'm not aware of it.
2: And along with an you know, haplo donors, like you are already alluding earlier. You know, mismatched, unrelated donors are also rising. And this is probably likely because of the PTCI regimen we use. Are there any robust data on the outcomes of mismatched, unrelated donors?
1: Right. So if you can um, use a half-matched brother or a sister, why not try mismatched, unrelated donors? And there, uh, and yes, there are data Uh, supporting such a thing. So there was a paper that came out in JCO, um, was it last year? No, this past year, just uh, this this spring, uh, that was an NMDP-sponsored. So the National Maradona Program sponsored the trial, phase two trial of mismatched mud using this post-transplant cyclophosphamide technique, both in uh, myeloablative and in reduced intensity transplants. Um, interestingly, there was no graft failure um, with the uh, myeloablative, uh, but there was an eight uh, percent graft failure with reduced intensity. I, I, I think that's interesting, suggesting perhaps that um, the reduced intensity might not be um, immunosuppressive enough to guarantee graft uh, engraftment. But you know, there's lots of patients, and eight percent not bad overall. But the one-year overall survival. Uh, uh, with uh, mismatched bone marrow transplant with PT with uh, post transplant side was 76% in seven out of eight matches, but also 77% with up to four out of eight matches, suggesting that you might be able to do haploidentical unrelated transplants. I'm not aware of anyone doing that because most people will either have a matched or a, or a single mismatched unrelated donor, but. Uh, it's just it's just fascinating that this this technique can overcome the barrier by that much. The same study showed uh, similar graft versus host disease and non-relapse mortality uh, similar to what would be expected with matched unrelated donor transplant. So yeah, there are and there's and that's just the the most recent largest study. There's plenty of data from all over the world showing similar um, effects
2: i think one question uh, dr Kalisho, for just for our listeners um in an ideal world in an ideal scenario if you have all the donors available what would be your sequence of you know choosing the donors yeah yeah i think so, i think you know just to so that some of the listeners can understand it clearly uh, someone like you right. uh, who, who has i all the donors available what would be your order of your preference yep.
1: so um all things being equal, right? Yes. So all things being equal, we prefer matched sibling donors. Yes. All things being equal, we prefer matched unrelated donors next. All things being equal, we like mismatched unrelated donors equal to haploidentical, depending on, and, and that's where all things aren't equal, right? Because there's, with them, that's when we start looking at age and cmv and abo and blah 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 so a mismatched unrelated donor is going to be on the same level i would let's say as a haploidentical sibling transplant roughly and behind all of those are umbilical cord transplants
0: All right. So I think this is a good segue to talk a little bit about umbilical cord stem cells. So um, as you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm behind cord blood unit as potential stem cell source, uh, maybe in, you know, around 2010, but perhaps with the advent of haplo, the enthusiasm has dampened a bit. So in your mind, what are the pros and cons of cord blood stem cells?
1: Yeah. So we still use them and I've got plenty of long-term survivors who were transplanted with umbilical cord uh, stem cells. Uh, the pros is that there's no risk to the donor, right? So th- so that's wonderful. You don't, no one has to be exposed to um, uh, general anesthesia or whatever risk there might be from phoresis. That's wonderful. Mismatches are clearly okay and you don't need post-transplant cyclophosphamide for it. So a four out of eight um, cord blood unit could potentially be used um, and it's relatively quick. These are, you know, they're frozen. They're available. Just go get them. But the problem is that they're, the cell dose for an individual umbilical cord unit is very small. And for adults, we almost always need two units. And when you use say one unit, expensive. Two units is very expensive. And it is way more expensive than a uh, haploidentical using post transplant psi. Further, Once you use a cord blood, you can't use it again. So you can't use, you can't do a second transplant with the same donor down the road. You can't do uh, donor lymphocyte infusions. And on top of all of that, uh, there's delayed engraftment and delayed immune reconstitution. And with that comes risks of uh, infection with things like CMV and and fungus. So on the whole, there are some pros, but the cons these days tend to outweigh them. All right, and, and what kind of
0: HLA matching, you you mentioned a little bit, but what kind of HLA matching you're looking at when selecting cord blood stem cells as the donor?
1: Right. Well, so just like everything else, we want it to match to the greatest extent possible. And so we look, we look for um, six out of six or eight out of eight, however, however you end up looking at it. But the, uh, and it's usually eight out of eight. I mean, you usually look at, usually look at eight out of eight. And the further away you get from the number eight, the less desirable it is, and we never go below four.
2: Uh, Let's switch gears and talk about the non-HLA factors that may play a role in donor selection. Apart from donor age, uh, Dr. Koreshio, what other factors do you consider in selecting an optimal donor when you have an option to choose between two or more? HLA match donors.
1: Yes. And this is where, and that's often the case. And so this is where, we, where our <clears throat> conversations and our donor selection meeting become animated when we're starting to look for, you know, what about this and what about that? <clears throat> and so uh, the, one of the more important things is age. We're always looking for the youngest donor. The second, probably most important thing is uh, gender match. So a male recipient, we prefer a male donor. There are determinants on the Y chromosome that can lead to graft versus host disease from a female donor. So we try to avoid female to male transplants. If the recipient is female, that doesn't matter as much. We do avoid uh, females who, uh, women with prior pregnancies just because of alloimmunization concerns, but that's in the end, relatively minor concern. We look at CMV zero status. And for those of you out there who are potentially studying for your boards, recipient CMV status is far more important than donor CMV uh, status, but we'll still prefer a CMV donor, CMV negative donor over a CMV positive one. And that's especially important if the recipient is CMV negative. To start with, so clearly a CMV negative donor would be preferred in that situation. Um, s- some things that uh, others you know could be could be thought of. Uh, we don't screen for CHIP, um, uh, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. We don't screen for that. All, um, what data exists and there's not much. Doesn't it doesn't seem to that that matters a whole lot. Um, and ABO. Incompatibility, it turns out, ABO matching probably doesn't matter uh, very much. If you know, whenever you can, if all everything else is equal, you'll maybe prefer a uh, O to O or A to A transplant. But if there's incompatibility there, uh, it 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 doesn't prohibit a transplant.
2: Thank you, Dr. Gadesha. I think you very uh, elegantly highlighted that, in our know, donut chip. You know, the data is lacking, um, um, whether to routinely screen all the donors for the clonal hematopoiesis mutation, because, you know, we don't know what to do with that information
1: right. and so, how it's yes. going to impact. So the, the National Maradona Program and the Be the Match Program, they do not screen right now, and there's no intention for them. And when we look for donors, we don't screen for CHIP.
0: All right. So now, uh, the next question is from a donor perspective. If, uh, I don't know if any donor will listen to our episode, I think maybe of interest to them. So once a donor is identified, broadly speaking, what kind of testing do they typically undergo like broadly? Uh,
1: yeah. So blood tests mostly, uh, looking for liver and hepatic, uh, hepatic and, and renal function, but also sometimes a chest X-ray, um, EKG, just screening tests like that. They don't get echocardiograms. They don't, um, get stress test, And importantly, they don't have to have a bone marrow biopsy. Uh, it's mostly blood tests and a physical exam.
0: All right. And, and when you're evaluating a donor in your clinic, let's say, what are the risks that you will typically tell them as a part of the informed consent process? Right.
1: So if they're going to have a bone marrow harvest, the, the risk really comes from the general anesthesia. But anytime we put a needle through skin, there's a chance of bleeding or infection. So we do warn them about that. Plus the Pain and discomfort that comes with having, you know, 50 bone marrow biopsies on each posterior iliac crest uh, over a one-hour period. Uh, the next day doesn't feel good. For those donors who are going undergoing therapeutic apheresis, <clears throat> we have uh, we screen them ahead of time for um, uh, concussion and for uh, large spleens. It turns out the fluid shifts that come with apheresis might. Um, have some deleterious effects uh, under those circumstances, but m- minor. Um, and we tell them that there might be some fatigue the next week. And once again, because there's a needle through skin, there's a chance of bleeding or infection, but uh, the, the, the risks really are, are minor.
0: Sounds good. So uh, finally, you know, we'll talk touch upon the donor availability, and as you had alluded to, the donor availability is limited for like racial ethnic minorities. And now that we have an increasing options for donor source, like we have identical transplant, we have cord blood cell. Do you think is this lack of donor availability still a problem for racial ethnic minorities, or that has been mitigated for the most part?
1: It it has definitely been mitigated, but it has not been eliminated. So um, when when you think about Um, matched unrelated donors. Um, When you look at at perfectly matched unrelated donors, the the likelihood of finding a match for say, African-Americans is less than 30%. But when you extend the search to a single mismatch, the chances of finding a donor go up to 75%. That is a big difference. And if you go to two mismatches, you go up even higher. Although, not not that much. Surprisingly, not that much higher. So you can, you know, that's that's the same likelihood of finding a donor as you would if a for white people uh, in match donors and with similar outcomes. You know that that pretty much brings them up to the same uh, likelihood of finding a donor as 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 white people. Uh, but in addition, this the, our ability to do haploidentical transplants extends the potential to family members, uh, not only brothers and sisters, but also potentially parents, children, nieces and nephews. And so, um, when you start, at, plus a cord blood bank that doesn't have to be matched. So when you start to, when you start seeing a recipient, when I start seeing a recipient, and I see them for the first time and tell them that I'm going to be finding. I'm going to be looking for a donor. I basically tell them that I'm going to find them a donor. I just don't know how long it's going to take. And I don't know who the donor is going to be. But I am i can't remember the last time I couldn't find a uh, a donor at all.
0: Sounds good. No, that, that's very really helpful. And other than NMDP, what are some of the key donor databases globally that you utilize if a patient is, let's say, coming from abroad or from another right. racial ethnic group?
1: Well, just about every country, uh, certainly in Western society, every country has its own uh, database um uh, the the one in um, England and Germany the ones in England and Germany are particularly uh, prolific but there's a um data a global database uh, called the bone marrow donors worldwide the BMDW, and that's where we look first all registries pour their patients into this database and so the entire you know it's international so that's where we go first um. There is another organization, the World Marrow Donor Association, I think is the name. Uh, that's the international version of the American Be The Match or the NMDP. But the, uh, because, all of, because Be The Match and all of these other registries pour into a single database, uh, we don't have to go working with other um, uh, registries anymore. It's all unified.
2: I think one last thing and then we can conclude the episode, uh, which I learned in your clinic, <laughs> working in your clinic and you explained to one of the patients about this. The majority of the times we found the donors are from Germany and there is a there is a reasoning behind that because the pool of donors from Germany are large. Uh, and the reasoning behind? Can you please explain to our listeners? <laughs> uh,
1: I'm I'm not exactly sh- sure what I told you, so I'll, I'll I'll see how consistent I can be. There is a large pool of donors in in Germany, and a lot of it is is societal, a societal expectation that um, they should try to help, in, in no small part because of the uh, difficult history uh, that Germany shares with the rest of Europe. And so there's a sort of a pay it. Uh, you know, an obligation felt uh, on their part to 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 help. Um, And and they are they are indeed very good at uh, not only um, being well represented in the registry, but they are also very efficient at securing donors and getting their cells at good doses and sending them uh, to us promptly, um, probably better than any other registry.
2: One other explanation I heard, um, is every person born in Germany, um, they, they will be a buckle swab drawn and Hitler oh, typing okay. is done.
1: That is true. Uh, but that's more recent, uh, because the okay. buckle swabs weren't, um, it's, it's, but the fact, the fact that it happens at birth tells you right. it's a societal expectation. Right.
2: That's true. That's true. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kalishov. This was really, really engaging, I'm sure all our listeners also will enjoy listening to this episode <laughs> even I learned a lot I'm sure Raj also learned a lot and uh listening to you talk about HLA uh, typing as well as the donor search thank you so much and we would love to have you back to have an excellent discussion about CML uh,